You are listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, a weekly podcast with Alexander Schacht, Benjamin Pieske and Sam Gardner, designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. Today, we are talking again with Sam and we are talking about the second part of non-clinical statistics. Today, we are really focusing on what that means for research and development. So stay tuned for another really, really insightful episode. If you haven't listened to the episode last week, I would say first head over there and listen to that one first because this is the second part of it. You can find out lots of help about visualization, leadership, better presentation, and all kind of other, other things on the homepage. We are not just publishing the podcast episodes there, we are publishing lots of additional things there as well. And also on LinkedIn, you know, follow me on LinkedIn and you'll get much more resources. I'm producing this podcast in association with PSI, a community dedicated to leading and promoting the use of statistics within the healthcare industry for the benefit of patients. And the flagship event of PSI is coming up, the PSI conference. Head over to psiweb.org and learn more about this conference. It's awesome. I am actually presenting as well. And there's lots of other great presenters. I think, you know, just from the quality of the presentations, this is one of an outstanding conference. They always have much more uh, people that want to present than they have slots. So they can have a good filter for high quality presentations. Check that out. I'm pretty sure you'll love it. And this time it's virtual. You don't need to travel and spend thousands of dollars for traveling and hotel and all these kind of different things. It's very, very affordable awesome opportunity and there will be lots of social interaction as well yes there's a nice tool that psi is using uh, called wonder.me and that enables us to have really nice social interactivity as well welcome to another episode with sam you probably heard the last episode where we already teased a little bit about the one today where we will talk also about quality by design, which is a really cool term uh, because it basically means that, you know, you can improve the quality by working well with your statisticians. So you have all the right uh, development of uh, everything in a, in a good shape. So Sam, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Alexander. I hope you're doing well too. Yes, yes. It's always fun to speak about these things where to be honest, I don't have so much knowledge about. So I'm learning quite a lot uh, by just doing these uh, podcast interviews, which is, which is a lot of fun. So let's talk about R&D and about the non-clinical sides of R&D. Sure. Where does it all start? 
Well, I mean, it, it starts all the way back into the area that you typically call discovery. So discovery is where you're trying to actually find a new molecule or antibody that has some therapeutic benefit. And so there's a lot of work that happens on in either engineering these new protein molecules or finding a chemical structure for a, a, a molecule that would go after some sort of biological function. Mm -hmm. So, so an example might be if you wanted to control asthma, right? Well, there are certain things in your body that trigger an asthma, an asthma reaction and biologists and doctors, they, they learn those things. It's usually some sort of immune based uh, activator, right? That activates the mast cells in your body and it makes it produce histamine and different things like that. Right. Well, what, what if you can stop that somewhere along the way? Right. Yeah, so this kind of long process and says, you right. know, one stone hits over the next one. And right. can you do some kind of barrier in between? So, right. you know, that the energy is absorbed of the stones. Yeah. So you want to find a compound that maybe binds against the, the, um, the, uh, the antibody that's in the, that's in yeah. the blood that starts the chain, or maybe you want to find a small molecule that binds to the final end of the chain that prevents that final uh, immune reaction to happen, right? There's different ways you can control and mediate those immune responses. And, um, and so you, in order to find those molecules, you, you honestly, you might have an idea what it is, but you have to try lots of different things and lots of different variations of molecules or, or uh, variations of proteins. And yet usually have to have sort of, sort of measurement method, like how well does it bind to a receptor site or mm -hmm. something that looks like a receptor. And, uh, And so you have to have an, an analytical measurement method, a chemical method, and you have to have a process that you use to do the testing. And it's usually a high throughput process. So you're doing hundreds of these or thousands of these, you know, over a short period of time. And you're trying to screen out the ones that have a high signal. And if, you've, and if you think about that as a statistician, you know that, okay, that's a classification problem, right? Mm -hmm. You're making measurements. The measurements have error, associated with them. And you need to make a decision based on that. And it's, it's a, really a, a go or no go. This goes to the next stage of development or not type yeah. question. And so, and you've got different types of errors you can make there. You've got the, the type one error, which is you move forward a molecule that you shouldn't, yeah. right? Because it, because it, it looked like it was a good signal, it looked like a good, a good binding activity, but it really didn't. Uh, and the second one is you, the type two error is you miss something that you, you should have moved forward. And so where do statisticians help in that area? Well, they help with one, making sure those processes that do the, the testing work run well, right? The, the test methods ha are appropriate, that, that, that they have the appropriate level of variability and that the risk associated with using those methods, the, the variability creates risk. Mm -hmm. those type one type two risks, that those are understood and managed in an appropriate way. So it may be what you do is to avoid the type one error, you come up with a sort of a statistically based decision rule where you say, okay, it, it passed the first level screening. Now I'm going to do a second level screening with replication yeah. and with more replication to confirm that second result. And if it goes through that stage, then it may be a better candidate, kind of like the phase one, phase two clinical trial. Type yeah. approach, but instead of just you know one trial, you've got hundreds and thousands of these coming through, right? 
Another area is they have these libraries of information about molecules and you can quantify a molecule structure based on, you know, the angles of the bonds and the length of the bonds and the molecules that are in there. And you think you could think about it, you could code that like a big vector, right? Yeah. That's a, yeah. just a, a, the, the molecular structure. Well, if you have this big vector and it can be a really big vector, you know, think about it for a protein, right? It's huge vector, thousands <laughs> and maybe millions of, of elements in that vector. Well, you want to do some data mining on that. You want to say, I, I know in the past the molecules like this had good activity and these other molecules didn't have good activity, but now I've got 20 times more molecules that I just made up in the computer that I simulate that I thought that I haven't actually physically made yet, which one of those might be a good candidate based on their potential structure. And you go through that process to say, Oh, these new hundred new molecules might be good candidates. Let's go make them. So it's, it's more of a predictive modeling type problem. People who do bioinformatics get involved with that sometimes too. Um, so it's uh, those are some interesting uh, problems. Some are just more on just sort of the sort of traditional, what I think we call quality in in the process that you're using to make decisions. And the other one is the data mining aspect of it. And there's probably more to it as well. I haven't worked as much in that area. Maybe we can find somebody who knows a little bit more about that sometime and have them on the podcast to talk about what it is they do in the area of discovery. Yeah, but I can see that there's potentially you have this the problem that your your vector of all the variables is much bigger than the sample you actually have. So yeah, uh, and that poses lots of interesting problems. You know, yeah, usually you in, in statistics, it's, it's the other way around. Yeah, you have a couple of endpoints, and you, then you have lots of subjects or, or uh, uh, samples from it. And, and yeah. that's the other high, high dimensionality is something that we as statisticians should know how to address appropriately. And that's yeah. one place we really provide value when we have those really wide tables with not many very rows in them. Yeah. Yeah. So that is dimension reduction uh, approaches. Anything that you have particularly used for dimensional reduction? Well, in the few in the situations where I have done that, and the this would be more on the manufacturing side of things, where you have lots of information about the manufacturing process, and maybe every batch of material you make, you may have a hundred or two hundred columns of information, you know, for yep. that one single batch. And I've used principal component analysis and partial least squares regression. Um, okay. Some new ideas that are out there that are useful are things like regularized regression using the lasso or the elastic net. Those are also pretty valuable, at least for maybe identifying what are those really important factors that might be driving the output. And, and then if you want to make predictions too, you can do that as well. I've even used stepwise regression sometimes. Okay. Um, oh, okay. So uh, for the principal component analysis, it would be basically to if you think about the covariance structure, you try mm -hmm. to simplify that and looking into, you know, combinations of linear variables that have these drive most of the variation. And that way you can, you know, look into only a couple of combinations of these uh, variables rather than to look into each of them. But the regression analysis would be more like, uh, you have the dependent variable, 
and then you have lots of independent variables and then you try to uh, reduce the number of features in in your model so to say yeah right right or you or you combine both of those you can actually combine the regression with those dimension reduction ideas that principal components uses, that's what partial least squares actually does. Okay. So okay. principal components, what it does mathematically, if you have the X variables, X variables in your model, Y is equal a function of X. You take, you find the directions in that vector in that space of those X variables that has the most variation. Yep. And that's your first principal component. Yep. And then for principal component regression, you would say, okay, let's take that first principal component. Let's do this transform and convert, you know, a hundred columns into one column by taking a linear combination of those hundred columns. That's your transformation to get your first principal component. Then you say, does that, is that correlated with the response and yep. you fit a model? Well, partial least square says, okay, let's find the, the direction in that X space, the, the design space of your problem. And then, but let's do it in such a way that it, it captures a lot of variability in that X space, but it also at the same time is highly correlated with the response. Yeah. So it's yeah. more of a, it's a different type of optimization problem to get to that answer. And, yeah. uh, but it, it, it ultimately, it just uses things like um, eigenvalue, eigenvector decompositions of the of the data and then you get the right answer out. So, and, and software does it automatically too, which is nice. Yeah. Welcome back to linear algebra one and two. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, sorry. If, if you never, if you didn't like linear algebra or you're just listening to hear what uh, podcasts think, or what statisticians think about on this podcast, sorry for all of that math. So. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And if you're coming from a completely different background, then just try to understand what, what we just said in terms of kind of, you know, verbalizing this, is that you either look into the covariance structure or you look into also the variable covariance structure with the endpoint you're interested in. So, so the why. You can combine both of that. So that's then the last method that we talked about. Okay, very good. Let's go into the next phase. After discovery, we get into early phase and there is the first species coming into play. Right. So one area where you get involved with the non-clinical statistics, and I think for human pharma, non-clinical means um, not clinical trials in humans. Yeah. Right. Um, but you do do trials and studies in animals. And, and that's often handled by people that are more in the non-clinical area, particularly things that are related to toxicology and pharmacology. So toxicology is, the, will this molecule harm me? If I get it into the body system, will it cause harm into the systems in my body, right? That's, that's what toxicology is. Is it toxic? Pharmacology is, well, what happens to the molecule when it gets in the body? Where does it get absorbed? How fast does it get absorbed? What parts of the body does it get distributed to? You know, is it metabolized in the liver first? Those types of things. And, and so statisticians really collaborate a lot with toxicologists and pharmacologists on understanding the systems. Uh, there's actually a whole statistical statistics area around compartmental modeling, mm -hmm. which really you, you model the body systems as compartments where you have flows in between the compartments. And there's a, 
a differential equation that describes that flow between the compartments. And then if you understand that, then you can end up fitting models based on data that you collect, to estimate those rates of moving between the different compartments. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's a little bit like if you, if you think of a big organization and you have, you know, put some pressure on it and then, you know, this pressure gets through the different departments of the organization and they interact with each other and, you know, uh, finance might do this and HR might do that and that might cause sales to do something different and that has a back effect on uh, finance again and so on. So it's the same basically happens in, in your body. Uh, so, or- so they use animals to do that and they use an animal model often to, to measure those types of things. And where do statisticians get involved with that? Well, one is just the study design. What's the appropriate number of animals? What's the randomization that you should use if you're testing against a control? The, and oftentimes you have interesting randomizations. You know, it's the randomization might just not be pure randomization. There might be some blocking effects that have to happen where you, maybe it's a, a, the pen or the room that the animals are stored in. You want to block on those because there can be environmental effects on the animals as well. And you want to control for those. And and so statisticians get involved with the study design quite a bit, and then subsequently the analysis of the study after it's done. So in terms of blocks, that's actually an interesting part. I know it from clinical studies that, you know, your blocks are within, for example, a physician. Yeah, so you have different physicians and you would randomize within these different physicians. Yeah, and let's say you have two treatments and you have... And you have a one-to-one randomization. So for every patient that gets treatment A, you have one patient that gets treatment B. You could have, let's say, a block size of four. Yeah. And so within this block size, there's two with treatment A and two with treatment B. And so basically you can have, you know, AABB or ABAB or BABA or B-A-A-B or B-B-A-A, I guess. You're, per- yeah. you're very good with those permutations there. <laughs> <laughs> and so this is kind of when you want to make sure that within these different blocks, you have always more or less the same number of uh, patients on both treatments because these blocks can have an effect. And if you then have... Um, certain blocks that only have A and other blocks that only have B, then you cannot understand what the block effect is versus the treatment effect is. Yeah. So because both are confounded with each other. And I guess here it's the same if you have, for example, two different labs or two different, don't know, types of animals in whatever type, you know, one is coming from one uh, parent animal and the next one is coming from another parent animal or yeah, different days or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, A lot of it is just understanding what, what are those nuisance sources of variation that you don't want to include as variation to attribute to the effect that you're trying to uh, measure. So, so you're just trying to avoid nuisance variation from having you make a mistake in the ultimate decision that you want to make. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of this blocks, of course you can have, you know, lots and lots of lots of blocks, but there's then a limit to that as well. Yeah. Because (laughs) 
then, then you end up having just you know one or two subjects and this right. has animals per block which is also not helpful yeah and so you have to try to find the right balance between the the information you gain from the experiment and the amount of resources you have to invest to get that information uh, and for a lot of reasons sometimes it's just time and money issues there's also animal welfare issues. You don't, if you're going to do experimentation on animals, you don't want to do it more than you need to, right? Because yeah. uh, yeah. we want to be, we want to use the animals for the purpose they were, you know, bred for, but we don't want to waste them and we don't want to unnecessarily uh, sacrifice those animals because most of the time the animals are euthanized after they've been put into a test. So, so there is that aspect of it. Um, so, so yeah, there, there's a lot of issues there where you're trying to balance the, you know, you'd be great if you said, well, you need to, I need you to test a hundred animals. And you said, well, don't you understand these animals cost $200 a piece and it's going to take me three months to test a hundred animals. Yeah. Well, I can't do that. So yeah. you have to find the right, the right compromise there to say, well, what's the number you need to test to get an answer that helps you make the right decision. Yeah. And that's an interesting problem in itself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. To understand kind of how you design the experiment um, has an in, you know, the design of the experiments is the experiments itself, yeah, has some kind of operating characteristics, yeah. So, and understanding that is important for that, you need to have clear what are the goals that you actually want to achieve, yeah, and not otherwise think about, hmm, now we have done the experiment, are we now more knowledgeable than before? <laughs> And I'll have to admit, I, I don't know that area as well as I do some other areas in R&D. I just know about it because I've been in R&D a lot and I have heard about it and seen what other people do. Again, it'd probably be good to get somebody that knows about this area a little bit better who work, who's a statistician working in that area could talk about it in a little bit more yeah. detail or with a little bit more clarity than I provided. So. Yeah. And that is a good topic for, for another podcast. Right. Okay, what else happens in early phase? Well, now I'm going to switch over to what I know really well, which is sort of that mid to late phase development and where you're trying to develop the chemical formulation and the chemical process to make the drug product. So you really have to start early on by what we call process definition. You define the process and you work on a team with chemists and engineers and biologists and, and a, a broad variety of people, even regulatory scientists, people who understand the regulatory requirements really well. And you, you come up with, okay, this is how I think I should make the medicine. Let's, let's try it. Let's do some trials to see if we can make it relatively consistently at this target. And then make material that can be used in clinical trials with that target production process. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's, so that'd be a, a big important milestone that has to happen in pharmaceutical development. And if you can get involved early on in that as a statistician and influence that by having people do more structured experimental design around that process definition step, that process definition overall process, right? It's, it's a process to develop a process. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. so the, but the, the process to come up with the 
target for production that you use, that overall laboratory experimental process, if you use good principles of statistical experimental design along the way, you're going to advance the development of that drug product process much more quickly. And so that's where I've had some good success where normally people might just try like these one of experiments. Let's try this today. Let's, let's set the temperature at a hundred and let's set the pressure at, you know, 20 and let's set the reaction time at two hours and let's see what happens. And then the next day they say, ah, oh, it didn't come out so well. Let's, let's increase the temperature. Let's see what happens. Right. And yeah. they just sort of fiddle around and just try different things. And what I'd like to do is say, well, let's think about it. What do you think might influence this chemical reaction? Can you list out the three or four or five things that might be influencing it? Usually the chemist or the engineer can sort of say, yeah, I can list that out. So they, and then, well, how, how much experimentation do you want to do? He said, well, I'd, I'd like to get the answer in a week. And I can do like four reactions a day. So I can do 20 reactions. So let's see, I've got five factors. I can do 20 experiments and there are four per day, right? Well, that you can then use principles of experimental design to find a good experimental design that fits within that experimental plan, right? The experimental resource plan. Yeah. And you typically use some sort of uh, software to develop the design, right? That, that does it for you, where you give it the parameters of the, that I describe, and it'll say, this is a design that will allow you to understand what's important what affects the output of this chemical process, right? This chemical reaction, is it temperature? Is it pressure? Is it reaction time? Is it the ratio of the solvent? Those types of things. And then you, and then you can get a, a target by having an equation that makes it a prediction, right? You do an experimental design, you generate data, you fit a model that makes a simple prediction about what the quality is going to be of that material. And then you use that equation to find an optimum or find a good target. That's really kind of experimental design in a, in a nutshell in, in that area. Right? You just, that's, just, that's how you apply experimental design. So basically you have something like, okay, um, the, you know, the chemist says to you, okay, we'll test kind of temperature between let's say 20 and 40 degrees. We'll look into uh, pressure in that range. We'll mm -hmm. look into these different dimensions for the ingredients. And then you uh, come up with a design and say, well, on, on the first experiment, you set the temperature here, the pressure there. So you use these kind of ingredients. And then in the second one, you do this. And in the third one, you do that. And when you have done all your 20 experiments, you come back to me and then we model what the overall kind of experiment has, has told us. And then we can say, oh, you can forget about the temperatures. It's, you know, within that range, nothing really happens. And, but with pressure, there you need to take care that, you know, within this kind of bar range, there's a, you need to have a little bit more closer look because there's something is breaking there. Yeah. Right. And, and, and so the idea around it using a statistical experimental design is when you've got those multiple factors that might be influencing this chemical reaction, you want to do the variation in those factors in a way that you don't confound their effects. Yeah. So you don't, I, I think I described that earlier on, right? You don't move temperature and pressure always in the same direction, right? At the same time, because then you won't be able to separate out if something changed in the output, was it temperature or was it pressure? Yeah. 
So, and, and as you get more factors, you need a better experimental design to even a better experimental design to, to account for that. Yep. What really makes this tricky and this or complicated in this area, what I just described for a typical new drug product, those types of problems happen dozens of times mm -hmm. for different parts of the process. Different because each of these processes have multiple steps involved with them. Each step needs that kind of focus, right? To understand how, how, do you, how can you make a target for this process? And then you have also all of the quality methods that are used to test the quality. They're being developed at the same time. So you're making this product while at the same time you're making the ruler that's going to measure the product. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's, um, and you, and those have to sync up together and, and you have to make sure that those, those analytical quality methods that are being used to measure the quality of this material are pretty good too. And that just, that's just to get ready for clinical trial manufacture. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You, you basically have then a design space where you have actually lots of missing cells, so to say. Yeah. You have, you know, yeah. actually by far most of your cells don't have any observations in it. Yeah. So you have only a couple of uh, observations in this big space, and then you try to do some modeling in it. Yeah, yeah the, the, it may turn out that the best way to make a drug product is the way that you never tried, but you did enough experimentation around that to know that, oh, here in this area where I didn't do an experiment, that should produce material that has the desired quality characteristics that I want it to have. Yeah, and um, so you can do and, a follow-up designs and yeah so so once so after it goes to clinical yeah after it goes to clinical trials then the whole next phase of development starts is okay we think this we're hoping this clinical trial is going to be successful right because statisticians like you and that work in the clinical area you know you you by this time you're you're assuming this is probably going to be successful and we're going to spend all this money to do a phase three clinical trial and we're going to design a really great study to do that and spend unreasonable amounts of money sometimes to to do those <laughs> couple of hundreds of millions sometimes yeah yeah lots of money lots of money so we're we're kind of assuming that that's going to go forward so now we're the clock is ticking we've got to get the final process defined on how to make this drug product and in the regulatory submission to get approval when you submit this not you just you don't just submit a target we got to make it with this temperature, this pressure, you have to submit it with ranges too. You have to say temperature between 10 degrees and 30 degrees and pressure between, you know, one bar and two bar and so on. And, and you've got to do that for every step of the process too. And there's just multiple, multiple decisions that have to be made where data is being collected to make a decision. And it, it's pretty complex. And, and so you really kind of have to understand not just the science, the, you know, the, the physics and the chemistry and the engineering. You also have to understand the regulatory requirements. What are the regulatory agencies expecting to see? What type of data do they want to see and how would they want it to be analyzed? The, the ultimate goal is to use this idea called quality by design, where what you've done is you've mapped out what are the, the key quality attributes that are important to the customer. Yeah. Right. The, the, the ultimate, the patient that's going to use this medicine, map all those back to the, the properties of the drug product that impact those things. So, you know, the, the patient wants the patient wants the material, wants the drug when they take it to treat the disease. 
right? So it's got to have the right potency. It's got to be safe, right? Yep. No side it's effects. Got needs to be no clean. side effects. Yeah. You know, clean, not broken tablets, things like that. You know, and, and it so needs you to be can, stable. Yeah, stable, so right? When it leaves the lab, or that you know, until it reaches the desk of the patient, it's still the same, right. approximately uh, in the same, still in the same range at least. Right. Yeah. So, so you're using those principles of quality by design. You map those things back to things like, okay, well, I know when I make a tablet in the drug product, I can measure how easy it is to break that tablet. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. They have yeah. these little testers where they actually, they measure the hardness of a tablet. They try to break it and they see what force causes it to break. Okay. Well then what, what's the criteria for the tablet hardness, the breaking force required to break that tablet that ensures that when it gets to the patient in the bottle, it's not going to be a broken tablet. Hmm. Have to figure that out. It takes a lot of experimentation to do that. That's just one aspect of the quality of the, of the product you have to determine. Uh, you have to determine all of the, the specifications that are, so what, what, what are the attributes you're going to measure and the criteria that those attributes have to meet to, make sure the batch is a good quality. And then you have to also develop ranges and a control strategy that says, if I operate this process within these ranges, I'm going to make material that produces good enough quality. It has the quality attributes all meet these specifications that we developed so that in the end, it's good for the patient, right? It's, it's, it's safe and efficacious for the patient. And there's a lot to it there. So you basically need to, for all the steps, in your development process. You need to have a good control on, of all the variables that are important. And you need to have for all of these thought through kind of experiments that would lead you, you know, all the answers to all these different questions. So that if you, you know, have this, all this kind of string of lots of lots of different steps that you know the overall quality of this very very long string of, of stuff yeah ideally what you'd like is a model a model that makes predictions about the process if i said these are all the inputs to the process i'm going to predict what comes out yeah right? yeah unfortunately the 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 real models that describe these processes are pretty complex so again using statistical analysis regression modeling with along with good experimental designs, you can build good approximate models mm -hmm. that let you make predictions. Um, and the, the, the level of fidelity that those models needs, it depends upon how much risk is associated with whatever it is you're trying to model. If it's the final step of the drug product process, that's probably more likely to potentially cause a problem to the patient than maybe something that happened 10 steps back in the process. Right. Because along the way, there are there are, there are controls and purification steps and quality testing all along the way that would weed out the bad material that comes through early on. But that final step, that's got to be right. Right. So you probably want a good model for that one if you're going to use a model to make predictions. Yep. And, yep. And, and that's the dream. That's the idea around quality by design is that you could actually have a model that predicts it predicts the batch you never have made yet. That's really what would be nice. Right. Cool. And, and cool. okay, so quality by design. We did a lot of teasing in the last episode, and today you got a got a feeling of what that looks like and what it takes, and said it also includes a lot of knowledge of the space you're operating in, 
uh, that it also includes lots of discussions with the other experts you're uh, involved in so that you understand what matters and that you understand what you know when he speaks in his kind of scientific or functional area language what what he's actually talking about so it's obviously also requires lots of communication skills and so with that thanks for listening today and next time we'll speak about you know what are the big differences between clinical statistics and non-clinical statistics and uh, what the different worlds can learn from each other. This show was created in association with PSI. Check out the homepage to register for the conference. Thanks to Rain who helps with the show in the background and thank you for listening. Reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients. Just be an effective statistician.